Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to an episode in Grinnell College's Authors and Artists podcast. And today I'm very pleased to say that we have William Ferguson, who goes by Bill, and we're going to be talking about his book, The Political Economy of Collective Action, Inequality, and Development, and it's out from Stanford University Press in 2020, I think. Is that right, Bill? That's correct, yes. Yes. Anyway, welcome to the show, Bill. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Marshall. Absolutely my pleasure. Could you um, begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, so I was, um, I was actually born in Southern California. We moved around a lot when I was a kid and, um, I ended up going to Grinnell college, uh, as an undergraduate, uh, in the early 1970s. Uh, I was actually a history major at Grinnell college. And I, I graduated from Grinnell in 1975 after graduation, uh, I ended up moving to Seattle, Washington, where I worked uh, for six years on and off as a neighborhood community organizer. And toward, towards the end of that stint, I started realizing that the part I liked best about the, the job, the job or jobs I'd had was doing the research. And then I realized, well, if I like research so much, let's go back to school. So I, I decided to go back to school. And I will mention... Uh, that my father was an economist. And so somehow his influence, I guess, mm-hmm. made its way into my brain. And I decided to, to go back to school, but, but to go to school in uh, economics. Um, and so I had to bone up a little bit. And I ended up going to the University of Massachusetts uh, at Amherst to get my PhD in economics. And then by really, mostly by a coincidence of the job market, uh, Grinnell happened to have an opening in exactly the fields I was ready to teach the year I was on the job market. So, you know, I, 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 I sent them my resume figuring, well, at least they'll read it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and sure enough, I got the interview and I ended up getting the job. So I've been teaching uh, back at Grinnell since uh, 1989. Um, and uh since the fall of 1989, and I sort of progressed through the ranks, assistant professor, associate, all that stuff. And currently, I'm the Gertrude B. Austin uh, professor of economics. I started out mostly teaching uh, labor economics, macroeconomics, uh, a little bit of statistics, intro, econ, and a few other things like that, and then shifted kind of mid-career into uh, game theory and collective notions of collective action. And then I redesigned my seminar to be a seminar on political economy. And it was really out of the combination of teaching a course in applied game theory, uh, which is really how we think about strategic behavior. And it's got multiple, multiple applications to economics, by the way. But anyway, how, how we think about the relationship between applied game theory and political economy, that's where, that's where my first book came from called Collective Action and Exchange, a Game Theoretic Approach to Contemporary Political Economy, published by Stanford University Press 2013. And then what happened was the last chapter of that book kind of takes big picture questions. Uh, how, do we, how do we think about relationships between uh, the spread of knowledge, power, and uh, institutions, and development, economic, economic growth and development, 
And really, my second book, this 2020 book, starts off with, it's kind of a sequel to the first book. It starts off on the last chapter of the first book and goes uh, deeply into the political economy of collective action, inequality, and development. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for that. What What is it like to be back at Grinnell, having been an undergraduate there, that is, as a professor? Uh, it's it's <laughs> actually quite nice. Uh, I, I was gone for, for 14 years. Uh, I graduated in 75 and, and started the uh, fall of 89. Uh, and I think having a long interview, for me anyway, worked in interval rather, for, for me, uh, worked quite well because I had some distance. And then I came back, but it was great coming back to a place because I knew it. Uh, and I already felt comfortable here. Uh, but also I saw it from a, a different perspective for two reasons. Obviously, a prof- faculty's perspective is very different from a student's perspective. Uh, and also I, I'm, I'm housed in the economics department, whereas an undergraduate, my, my major was history. So I, I, you know, a different perspective for that reason. I'll, I'll mention, by the way, that my wife also graduated from Grinnell. So, so it made it, um, let's say, a familiar move for us in, in some respects. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you, in that 14-year interim, did a lot change? Or do you want to talk about that? Well, <laughs> things changed. Um, it, it was no longer the 1970s. Uh, and so so the, the culture definitely changed some. Um, on the other hand, it, in some respects, it's it was and always has been Grinnell. Um, it, it always had this sort of deep, deep... Uh, engagement with the liberal arts, uh, inquisitive students asking tons of questions, um, and it's sort of this this foundational notion that spans a lot of the college and interest in social justice issues. I mean, that 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 didn't change at all. Um, the content changed. The, the, the student body is more diverse than it used to be uh, in many respects, both internationally and domestically. Um, and uh, I think the other the the other big change is that students pay much more attention to what job they're going to get after they graduate. Is that right? Than huh. we did in the 1970s. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't pay any attention to that, honestly. I- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. For good or ill, I didn't pay any attention to <laughs> right. it. Um, so this is a book about economic development. Maybe you could begin by explaining what economic development is and what questions it asks. Yeah, okay. So, so, so development, and I'm actually going to uh, talk about political economic development. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to use a definition uh, from uh, economist Amartya Sen, and that is the, it's, it's a capability approach. In other words, development, economic and political development, means a broad spread, inclusive expansion of economic and political capabilities of members of a society. Okay, so on economic side, we're not just talking about growth and income, income per capita, which which matters, but it's not the only thing. We're talking about spreading that income across the society, so some degree of equity, and we're talking about foundations of economic capability. So where do you, where do you get economic capability from? Well, you get it from education, you get it from quality health care, um, you get it from provision of basic uh, infrastructure. Uh, it, it's hard to develop if, if your highways are all dirt roads um, and you, you, you get it from provision of other, 
other relevant uh, services. Uh, so all of that needs to be widespread. And then on the political side, you need to have the same thing, capabilities. How can people learn to participate in making decisions about governance? Okay. Well, they need to have access and they need to have input and they need to have experience. Uh, so that's one level of political capability. And then another level is, is accountability. Is, is there a manner that the public can hold government agents accountable? And then another, another dimension would be impartiality. Can you generate uh, you know, some sort of standardized rule sets that does not just favor the most powerful and so forth? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say that the fundamental question in development economics is, well, I don't know if it's a fundamental question, but certainly one that's interesting is why some societies seem to develop relatively well. Again, I don't want to get into value judgments. They they seem to, to be more prosperous and free. I, I guess I put my cards on the table there, didn't I? Um, and s- some don't. Yes. Yeah. And that, that's that's that's. Uh, I would argue that in some respects, that is a fundamental question. In fact, the introduction of the book, I ask a version of exactly that question. You know, why, 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 why are some societies pretty prosperous and have relatively open avenues for political participation, whereas, whereas other societies seem to be stuck in what we could call poverty traps? Uh, yeah, and you mentioned this in the book. With the, the obvious examples. You know, yes. that everybody will know is North and South Korea. One of them seems yeah. to be trapped. Right. And and the other one seems to have done pretty well. I don't, I don't know enough about yeah. South Korea to say, but they're pretty yeah. prosperous and I think they're pretty free. And um, so we want to explain exactly what it is that enabled South Korea to prosper and become free. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, yeah, that's, that's a big part of the question. Huh? And, and I would argue they did, uh, a, a, a good job, uh, comparatively speaking anyway, of, of building uh, capabilities amongst their public. And, yeah, uh, well, this gets my, my, of access. Yeah. Yeah. So it, 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 you do offer a theory, and I really like that. Theories are testable, as they should be. So, like, the evidence matters. So what is a development theory, and what does it try to explain? We've kind of already answered that question, but what are the aspects of a development theory? Yeah. Okay. So, so what I'm trying to do in this book here is to develop uh, what we could call a, a conceptual framework for development theory, and the idea is that that I want to think about um, what the relationship is between specific types of social context and prospects for political economic development. And to do so, what I need to do is develop a set of categories. In other words, I need to be able to think of okay, what what are some certain basic categories of political economic context and how do those how how do societies in one or another of those categories what kinds of problems of development which i'm going to call collective action problems are more or less implied by that particular context and the idea then is to use use that framework to guide uh, theoretical inquiry and uh, empirical inquiry, in other words, to generate a set of testable hypotheses and also to generate a, a, a set of questions to ask and avenues to explore and ways to think about things that can guide developmental policy making as well. Uh, where, from my point of view, again, I'm interested in inclusive development uh, capability building as, as, as we already talked about. Um, so, so I regard my approach here as trying to bridge a gap 
that I often see in the literature between what you could call a one-size-fits-all approach to developmental policy. And an example of that would be um, what, what, used, what used to be called the Washington Consensus, where in the 1990s, where the idea was, well, to ve- develop what you've got to do, uh, countries that need to develop, what they have to do is uh, adopt market procedures, deregulate. Uh, and it could be more elaborate than that, of course, but, um, but or, or slightly more broadly to adopt what you could call best practice institutions imported from you know, reasonably successful developing countries. Okay, so that's one approach on one hand, the quote, one size fits all. On the other extreme is a case study approach. And it's an idea that says, well, every every society and every subgroup in every society is unique. And if you want to understand how that operates, you've got to go there and look at the details, the intricate details. So my approach here says, well, let's, let's take a middle ground. In other words, yes, of course, the social context matters, obviously, but... Let's draw some themes across different types of social context, and let's try to put certain types of political economic context into categories, and then we can argue that each category faces a certain type of obstacles, or what I'm going to call collective action problems, that can, in fact, impede development, and then an understanding of the relationship between the context and the collective action problem can generate testable hypotheses and can inform policy analysis. Yeah, you've kind of touched on the eternal battle between the area studies people and theoreticians. The area studies people are always go there and live and you'll figure out what's going on. And then the theoreticians usually use the comparative method of some sort to try to you know, create much broader categories that work across these various cultures. And there's always been this tension. I remember reading like Economy and Society by Max Weber, and it's a whole bunch of, kind of abstract typologies of various different things, which are very illuminating. Uh, until you get on the ground and they're not quite as illuminating as they were when you were reading the book in your study. Um, so I'm trying to think about, and you just mentioned the Washington Consensus, but there have been a lot of developmental theories. And, you know, one of them, I was a Russian historian, or I guess I am a Russian historian, and one of them comes to mind, is Marxism a developmental theory? I... It- I'm trying to think of something. I would say that it's an approach that that can generate developmental theories. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. So this was this was, and and I suppose that in some sense it was tested, (laughs) or some version of it was tested. tested, Yeah, yeah, Yeah. right. But it does prescribe a series of stages and inputs and then outputs and so on and so forth. And this is the kind of thing we're looking for. Um, So you make an analogy in the book between the problems that biologists face when trying to explain what they see in nature and the problems economists face when trying to explain different outcomes in economies. And key to this is the notion of complexity, which I don't think we pay enough attention to. Can you talk a little bit about the, I I would call it the problem of complexity? Because you're dealing with, you know, if you think of just simple multivariate analysis, you soon have more variables than you know what to do with. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, you do. Um, that's right. I mean, ultimately, uh, I suppose we could say ultimately everything in the in, in the world is a complex system, um, but that's very hard to digest. So, so what what uh, so the the approach that I'm trying to take is okay. Let's let's think of some fundamental categories and some fundamental relationships. Okay, and I'm going to argue that one of the fundamental relationships is this notion of collective action problems. I'm going to argue that all societies 
I guess this is a slightly one-size-fits-all notion. All societies face collective action problems, but the nature of those problems differs tremendously and depends on the local context. Uh, so so one, one way to think about complexity is to say, okay, can we understand uh, what what collective action problems might be interfering with development in this society? And can we get some sense of where they're going to come from? The other, the other thing that I'm going to argue is fundamental here, and I get to this in the latter part of the book, is the notion of a political settlement. And this, this is going to have to do with the distribution of power amongst parties that are actually in, in a position to exercise power. Um, and the degree to which those parties have come to some sort of an understanding that, that they will use politics of one sort or another to resolve their disputes rather than organize violence. Uh, and so what I end up doing is saying, okay, we can think of a couple of fundamental types of political settlements, which are based largely on distributions of power. Uh, and then we can say that each one of those types of political settlements has implications on collective action problems that would accompany and often get in the way of developmental processes. So it's, it's a way to try to take really a large, a large set of variables. I mean, if you want to get down to really specific models here, you, you can throw a lot of variables in, but paint a broad picture first. You know, if you want to do a, uh, an analogy with art, start out with an impressionist painting Get 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 that notion right before you go down to realism, um, and that gives you some idea of where to focus your attention when you want to get down to a more detailed level of thinking about well what are, what are, what are what are what are the processes that really matter in uh, let's say you know India or uh, South Korea or or uh, Vietnam or or wherever right. Mm -hmm. So you, you talk about political settlements. Is it possible to sketch a brief typology for the listeners of what these are? Do they correspond with kind of, I would almost call them cliched or folk notions? There's the communist one and the capitalist one, or there's the liberal democracy one, or there's the authoritarian one. Do they correspond with these kind of everyday concepts? Uh, no. <laughs> That's the answer I wanted. <laughs> They're related, but they do not correspond. Uh, I mean, we can go. We can go into that. I. Um, it, it it might in in terms of the progression of the book, I talk about collective action problems and what they are first before I go into political. Science. Well, let's start there then. Why don't you describe what a collective action problem is? Okay. So 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 a collective action problem is is a problem that occurs whenever individuals or organizations acting in their, according to their own inclinations uh, and their own interests generate outcomes that are bad or undesirable, let's say, for some group, usually larger group. So, so a traditional example of a collective action problem would be pollution. Uh, we all want certain types of goods. Companies produce certain types of goods, and when they do so, uh, they emit pollution, okay? Um, so is there some way to get around that? Uh, other types of collective action problems would involve how, how, do you really, how do you really provide certain types of public goods and services uh, that, that economists call public goods or they have public good attributes where once they're produced, anybody can have it? Well, if anybody can have it, why pay for it? Uh, why, why contribute anything to it? Uh, so so that, that's, the, that's the basic notion. Another collective action problem would be crime. 
It's certainly in some people's interest to commit crime. Uh, obviously not in other people's interests. Um, <clears throat> corruption would be a large-scale p- collective action problem. A global collective action problem, climate change. How do we deal with that? Um, and, and, and so forth. These are kind of zero-sum trade-offs then. Like no, you, they're not zero-sum. Okay, so no, no, I'm, I don't I'm like stepping zero-sum. in it here. Okay, I'm they're, sorry. They're, yeah. they're, if we're talking about trade-offs, I'm, I'm going to argue that usually the interests are partially aligned. In other words, they're partially in conflict, but there are also potential rules for cooperation, which may or may not be taken, of course. So that's just sort of a, a side point. Uh, I'll mention one other thing about collective action problems. I categorize them into two types, first order and second order. First order, pretty much what I just talked about. In other words, uh, uh, can be associated with what you could call a free rider problem. Okay, uh, you produce the public good. I'll enjoy it. Thank you. Um, You limit pollution. Uh, I'll enjoy the cleaner air. Thank you. Um, And so the resolution of a first order collective action problem Uh, tends to resolve on some sort of negotiated understanding, sometimes explicit, sometimes just implicit or written, on how do you you share the various costs and benefits of limiting uh, producing public goods or limiting pollution, something like that. Okay. But then once you have an agreement, a fundamental question arises, and that is, are the parties really going to honor the agreement? I mean, oftentimes it's cheaper and easier to cheat. Uh, I think we're, we see a lot of that in climate action, actually, these days, with all the agreements that have been made by various countries. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We see, we see it all over the place. They, they've agreed to everything, but they're not doing very much. And we can see it with climate agreements. We can see it with peace treaties sometimes. Yeah, right. We can see it with negotiated settlements of various sorts. Uh, we, we, we see it a lot. And that's what I call a second-order collective action problem. And the second-order problem is arranging for the coordination and the enforcement that you would need for the parties who, who somehow agree on a first-order problem to actually honor the agreement. Um, and my argument here is that the resolution of second-order collective action problems has absolutely everything to do with the successful implementation of policy. If you're trying to come up with a policy, a policy can sort of be a statement, okay, here's what we're supposed to do. Well, is that really going to happen or not? Making that happen is frequently a second order collective action problem. And I'll mention one other thing, and that is that because resolution of selective action problems uh, involves enforcement, it always involves exercises of power. And so in my way of thinking that because uh, contracts agreements have some enforcement provision, economics and politics are intricately linked even at the micro micro level of small agreements. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, but also at the macro level, because as you mentioned, lots of governments have agreed to reduce carbon emissions. Uh, how do you enforce that? This is a, this is not, there is no, uh, there's nobody to enforce these things. And so what your argument then is, is that if we get the policy right, then, then the enforcement won't be necessary? Oh, no, no. The enforcement is a separate problem. It's a problem. And, and you can flip it around. If nobody expects the enforcement, why negotiate the policy? Um, and which often happens. I mean, there are many problems that nobody even tries to address because they realize that there's no way to enforce an agreement about it. So why bother? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, this is. A, I think this is a nice segue into the the political question that I ask. And if you think about, you know, uh, COVID is kind of a collective action problem in the sense that we want 
pretty much everybody to get vaccinated, or we want to keep COVID away. The Chinese have uh, tried to do this uh, by implementing what we in the West would think of as drastic measures. Uh, And they can do that, I think, uh, because of their um, political settlement, to use your words. So there are a variety of these political settlements. Um, Can you talk a little bit about them? Yeah. Okay. So let's go into political settlements. Uh, So again, the, the concept... The, the concept is that the political settlement is a mutual understanding held among parties that have power, uh, that they will rely on politics rather than organized violence to settle their disputes. And then I say that I, I develop a typology, all right, of political settlements, and I say that there are really two, two dimensions of the typology. The first is what you would call the social foundation of the political settlement. And the social foundation means who's included in the settlement, uh, which which groups in society, which salient groups in society are part of the settlement? This can be political groups, it can be ethnic groups, it can be religious groups, it can be linguistic groups, and so on and so forth, right? Who, who's included? Who's party to it? And the criterion for inclusion is, does the group have disruptive potential? If the group has disruptive potential, meaning the ability to upset, unsettle the agreement, then they need to be included in the understanding in some fashion. Or to put it slightly differently, uh, the included parties in a political summit, this, does not, this is not the governing coalition. This is usually a broader notion, is the, the set of groups that policy actually has to pay attention to, whether or not they're part of any governing coalition. Okay, uh, So the example I often give is uh, in China, um, the rural peasants uh, I would argue have very little representation at the national level, yet they're still part of the political settlement. The national government has to pay attention to them, even though it, uh, it may not represent them in any direct sense. Okay, uh, so that's part of it. So, and this and this this social foundation can range from narrow to broad. Okay, it can be a spectrum. I categorize it in two, but really it's a spectrum. Okay. So that's one of the dimensions, and it's important because it establishes, uh, it, it influences the stability of the settlement. If you exclude a lot of people, it may be vulnerable. Uh, but secondly, it influences the incentives of any ruling coalition on distribution of benefits. And if you have a broad settlement, you've got to distribute those benefits broadly. If you have a narrow settlement, you do not have to. So that's one dimension. The other dimension I call the configuration of authority. Okay. And this has to do with the degree to which insiders in the settlement, and particularly the powerful among them, um, have come to a set of agreements on how to allocate decision-making authority. Um, have, have they done so or not? Are they roughly coherent or are they incoherent? And so I'm going to argue that the configuration of authority ranges from what, what you could call um, <clears throat> multipolar, meaning scattered, um, meaning that they don't agree on basic policies. They don't agree on fundamental policies, like the relationship between the state and the market or the relationship between the state and religion, so that they have to renegotiate little tiny details. Okay, So that's multipolar on one hand to unipolar on the other hand, where they've largely resolved these sort of broad-based collective action problems. doesn't mean that they always agree. 
They, they argue all the time over policy details, but they have some fundamental understandings that they agree on. And I want to stress here that this is different. This is not the same thing as the distinction between autocracy and democracy. Okay? You can have unipolar autocracies like China. And they, they've got a pretty good idea where they're going. Um, and you can have multipolar autocracies like the Philippines, pre-Marcos Philippines, where they're going 20 directions at once, but they certainly weren't by any ship, you know, any stretch of the imagination democratic. Um, okay. Likewise with democracies. You can have multipolar democracies. India would be a good example. We're hoping it hangs on to its democracy. Um, but in any event, it's, it's, there, there are very many conflicting interests, and they always have to renegotiate their relationships with each other. Um, you can have uh, more unipolar democracies, uh, certainly uh, like up until recent periods at least, uh, Sweden, Norway, Denmark. Uh, yeah, I was thinking. I was thinking. I was thinking about. Sorry to interrupt, but I was thinking how this relates to the idea of again a generic concept, and not probably theoretically very apt, but homogeneity. Like I remember, I remember I had a conversation with a Japanese guy once, very nice guy, and I said, "What happens when somebody wants to become Japanese?" And he didn't understand the question. It's like that's like that's not a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but Japan is reasonably homogeneous, and I, I don't know about South Korea. It's reasonably homogeneous. The Philippines is not. India is not. The United States is right. not. Yeah, right, right, right. yeah. I mean, I, I think I think it's it's um, more difficult, but not impossible, if you have a heterogeneous society. I would argue that the United States was more unipolar than it is now, forty or fifty years ago. Um, in other words, the United States has moved on the spectrum in the direction of multipolarity. I think that's yeah. right, too. I would agree with that. Yeah, well, but we've been, to go back to what you said before, our political settlement has shifted a little bit. We now include a lot more people, at least I think we do. We're supposed to have. Uh, We're supposed to have. Yeah, supposed yeah. to have. Notice I yeah. was very careful about the way I put that. Right. Uh, we're supposed to have included all of these voices. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's been reflected. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and then in the case of you know, of, of a place like the Philippines or India, they have, you know, it's not an insurmountable problem, but there's so many different groups. Yeah. They do find themselves kind of, there's a lot of things to negotiate. I mean, we have a channel on the New Books Network called Indian Religions. That's because there are a lot of them. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I think it's more difficult in, and we can think of it as a collective action problem. Uh, it's not necessarily insurmountable, but, but, it, it's it's not necessarily easy, and there are a whole series of things that are exacerbating that problem in the United States. Um, it's not just. Can you broader, talk a little bit about it's that? It's not just broader inclusion. There's all kinds yeah. of other stuff going on there, right? Um, yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah. I mean, the the, the uh, this is more uh, where I'm going to go with my next book than where I've been with this book, um, but but it's there. Um, we, we can think of, uh, my next part is, is going to head in the direction of um, subnational units. In other words, the first, th- this book is largely, though not entirely, focused on societies as nations in some sense. Uh, although in a, in a, in a multipolar uh, settlement, um, it's, it's, it's very clear that subregions are really important and 
multipolar settlements anyway. So, so, so the next book will go in the direction of, okay, well, how do we think about subnational units, not just by region, but by social cleavages, which would be divisions, uh, ethnic divisions, racial divisions, religious divisions, ideological divisions, and so forth. Um, how do we think about that? So um, one, one of the ideas that's going to matter there is, is uh, more attention to um, understandings of the social context and the ability, and this actually goes back to my first book somewhat, but anyway, the, the, the ability to frame people's understandings of where they are, who they are, who they're engaging with. Uh, and we can posit a notion of uh, what I would call political entrepreneurs or what many people would call political entrepreneurs who, who are people who understand how to invest resources into shifting understandings of the way the world works on the sort of economic political side or who we are on a personal identity side. And I would argue that those, those dynamics are... Uh, really powerful right now in the United States. Oh, I think, they, I think you're exactly right about that. Yeah, I think, they, I think they really are. have a political party identification with do you wear a mask or not? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, how did that happen? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's odd. Um, but I think you're exactly right about uh, political I- or identities in the United States because actually I was just listening to this interview with a guy who emigrated from uh, Afghanistan and he said he loved the United States uh, he had to leave Afghanistan for various reasons um, because you could be hyphenated. He said, this is great. I can be an Afghan American in Afghanistan. There just isn't any such thing. And uh-huh. I can, yeah. I can be who I am, but this also has a kind of, there's an externality here. Like this also means that he's not an American because there are some people that just identify as Americans. Right. So there's this tension, if you see what I mean, yeah. between these kinds of things. Yeah. 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 And it's a tension that I would argue various types of political entrepreneurs exploit, and and oh, in a big way, yeah, in a big I mean, way, and and uh, yeah. In other words, they they make the collective action problem of heterogeneity much more difficult. Yes, they do. Than it yes. has. Let's not be specific about this, but it happens yeah. all over the political spectrum. I yeah. think we can yeah. agree on that. Yeah, I'm not yeah. going to names, but anyway, yeah. yeah. Um, Right. So, 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 so. Anyway, the 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 idea then again is is to systematically relate these types of social context mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. collective action problems. So, so back to the political settlement typology, you can have a broad, uh, a multipolar settlement that has a broad social foundation, and I would argue that's basically what you've got in India. They're paying attention to an awful lot of people there, but they're not very unified about what they're doing. Okay, um, and that has a series a series of implications. Okay, well, what are the developmental collective action problems here? Well, in the, the, roughly speaking, the idea is: is there a way to make them more unipolar without throwing people out of the social foundation? Right, exactly. Right? Yeah. Right. Uh, right. So right. How, right. how do you do that? In other words, and the idea of, this, of the book is. These are the big questions that you need to work on before you can come up 
with specific policy prescriptions. Yeah, you kind of have to lay the foundation. And India is completely remarkable in that way because it has, many people don't know this, but it's about 10 times as diverse as Europe. People just don't know this. And and it's an incredibly complicated place. It's amazing they can do anything there. <laughs> yeah. It is. It, it, it's amazing that they've had a democracy for so yeah. many decades. Right, but they have developed a kind of a foundation. There is an Indian identity. Uh, and they have a constitutional framework, and they seem to stick to it, which is, you know, again, very remarkable given the experience of a lot of other places that have not had this kind of success. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And in the United States, I think we had done that, or maybe we have done that. Again, I'm thinking about the idea of an American identity. What is it to be an American? And But you're right, these political entrepreneurs are constantly hammering away at these... Yeah. Yeah. These differences. Right. So, you know, I mean, are we, you know, I can I can posit two American identities immediately. Are we a nation of immigrants? Bring me your poor, bring me your, you know, so on and so forth. Or are we a nation of, uh, you know, I don't know, European descendants of European yeah. soldiers or something like that. Right. Right. Um, and you'll, you'll find political entrepreneurs that will hammer away at both of those in search of right. votes. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I was thinking that, you know, in in the case, you know, I've spent a lot of time abroad and and, well, not a lot, but some time abroad and people would ask me, you know, it's strange in the United States because people would ask me where I'm from and I would always say Kansas. (laughs) 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 And they were completely like, what does that mean exactly? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I could I could give one more elaboration if you want. Please do, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so one more elaboration that can fit into this typology is there there are two other interesting questions. Uh, and one is um, access to point source resources. In other words, um, the political the whole collective action problem of political settlements can become even more difficult if you have broad access to easy point source resources, what do I mean by that? Lots of oil, lots of diamonds. Uh, In other words, types of wealth that essentially what you do is all you have to do is extract them and you've got a ton of it. Uh, And it's easily concentrated. Um, And so you can, in those situations, you can end up with what a lot of people call a resource curse, uh, which is the notion that, well, the ones with the most power grab the good resources, they can make themselves rich, and they don't really have to give much to anybody else. In other words, you can generate a narrow social foundation, a sustainable narrow social foundation on the basis of extractable resources, and and then use some of the money to uh, fund a repressive army and so on and so forth. Yeah, um, I can tell. I can tell you that uh, with some confidence, this has happened in Russia. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't feel. Right. I don't feel any uh, hesitancy right. in saying right. that. <laughs> uh, so you could say, yeah, Russia has a bit of a resource curse with its mountains of natural gas and oil. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so that's one dimension. Do, do do they have access to that or not? And you know, just to cite examples, South Korea doesn't have any. Yeah, any, I was speaking exactly none. of South There's Korea. None. Yeah, they have okay. none of that stuff. None of that stuff. Um, a, a second question is. Is, is there a mutually understood, and mutual understanding is really important here, a mutually understood threat to the political survival of ruling coalitions or slightly more broadly insiders? And if the answer is yes, then they have to figure out 
a way to include enough people to ward off that threat. And that's exactly what South Korea did. Uh, the North was always an existential threat to, to the political survival of any ruling coalition in South Korea. And therefore, they had to gain the unity of the population behind their government. And in the 50s, this was seriously problematic. They just came out of a terrible war. Um, and um, they had to cobble that together in some fashion. And what's, what's interesting, and, and so if it, and the mutual understanding is really important. The existence of a threat's not good enough. Case in point, COVID-19 in the United yeah. States. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's not enough. Um, yeah, so then in the, in the case of the South Koreans, they made the transition, though, from what was, I, again, I'm using terms which you probably won't like, an authoritarian regime. To, to a relatively democratic one. Am I wrong about that? They managed no, to make no, this No, Those terms are fine. They're just not the same thing as political settlement. They're relevant terms. And, you know, I, and, and yeah, I'll lay my cards on the table. Part of political development is moving toward democracy. But that's not the same thing as political settlement. So, yeah, you're right. They moved, they moved from autocracy to, to uh, an electoral democracy um, with, with, with their, with their, Strike wave in 1988. I'm pretty sure I got that year right. You know um, a lot more about it than I do. I and, watch a lot of Korean TV and movies. That's yeah, been yeah. the extent of my it's knowledge a, of it. Very, very interesting coalition between workers in the export industries and students. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, yeah, talk a little bit about that because I know that there were huge student protests against the United States in Korea in the 1970s and 80s. Is that right? Yeah, now these ones were the, this is I'm talking the late eighties. Yeah. It was a okay. general strike, okay, in the export industries. And and that that's where they get half the revenue. Half is probably not exactly but anyway. They I mean they need that export revenue in those manufacturing export industries. And so when the workers go on strike there, that's a serious threat. Yeah, they need to be included. And and then you've got a, 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 they were developing prosperously, developing a middle class. The middle class wants their kids to go to college. Um, They figure out how to do that. Uh, They they were really quite successful in educational policy, but that's another story. Um, And, um, and so you ended up with this coalition of students who, of course, it, it's you know are are often let's say dissatisfied with the existing regime, uh, workers, uh, particularly in the export industries, and the students' parents, who who said no really we we should have this stuff. So you had this you had this broad coalition, of, um, and you know I'm not a super expert on this, but this yeah, is yeah sure, but it's very interesting, and right, I did wonder how they made happen, the transition. And essentially, yeah. the regime had to give in. Yeah, that's that's remarkable. And it I was yeah, it was a peaceful transition. There was, there was it was yeah it, it was absolutely a peaceful transition. Well, um, Bill, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I really appreciate. It. I think we could go on for another hour or two. I don't think I would have any problem with that. Um, we have a traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, uh, and you've hinted at this a little bit. What are you working on now? Okay, so yeah, I do have an idea. Uh, that I've developed somewhat for um, what I would say the third book in the series, okay? Um, and that would be to take the um, collective action problem political settlement framework that I've developed in the in the second book and say, okay, now I want to look in much more detail at the subnational level. And at the subnational level, I will talk about uh, both region 
and what I mentioned earlier, social cleavages, um, with a fair amount of attention to ethnicity, uh, ethnicity, race, religion, language, um, with those 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 kinds of cleavages. And this will be cross cultural as well, or cross state. Well, we're talking about the United States here. We're talking about. Oh no, it's it's yeah no. I'm I'm talking. You know, we we the idea is yeah. You can you can think about India. You can think about South Korea. You can think about China. So on and so forth. In other words, all of the all of these endeavors are meant to be very broad, comprehensive theory that could be applied to, you know, more or less anywhere. Uh, maybe that's a bold statement, but anyway. Uh, so so that's the direction I want to go in. And to think about the social cleavages, I'm going to go back to kind of a micro level and talk about um, identity. Identity, and they, there's, there's actually a couple of economists, Zakharov, Cranton, and a few others, who, who have developed some papers on what we call identity economics. Might sound unusual, but but you you can think of that, and we can think of so we can think of identity economics. We can think of the politics of identity, and we can talk about well, how does that operate? And then we can throw in this notion of political entrepreneurs and what they're going to do. What what the successful ones uh, can really do two things: they can one manipulate understandings of the of the economic environment. Um, so. so and, and we see lots of that. That's what a lot of the policy debate is about. But they can also uh, work on understandings of who, who you are, who, who, is, who is what and what are the classifications. And in particular, what they can do is they can increase the salience of certain types of identities. Because after all, we all have lots of identities. We do, yes. Right? You know, I could probably list 10 or 15 off the David top. David Hume pointed this out in the 18th really century. <laughs> Um, but, but in certain periods of time, and this is a March of Sin again, uh, a singular identity becomes prominent, dominant, overwhelming, and very demanding. Uh, and for Sin, at least, that's when ethnic violence erupts, when, when the identities become singular um, so that there's no bridges. We no longer belong to the same sports club. We're just, we're, we're just uh, you know... <clears throat> Well, know. this is kind of I, you know, I don't want, I don't want to make this sound flippant, but it, it kind of relates back to what you said about the class of people that wear masks and don't wear masks. These have become very strong identities for some weird reason. Yeah, yeah, and, and the ceilings that, and you know, I mean, in Grinnell anyway, you know, they're neighbors. Yeah, right. I know. Yeah. You, know, you see them on the street. It's like, well, okay, let's let's identify as neighbors and a little bit less as mask wearers or non wearers. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, no, I, um, yeah. Well, from your lips to God's ears. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let me tell everybody that we've been talking to William Ferguson, who goes by Bill, about his book, The Political Economy of Collective Action, Inequality and Development. It's out from Stanford University Press. I've really enjoyed my time with you, Bill. Thanks for being on the show. Okay. Yes. Thank you very much, Marshall. And, okay. Uh, bye bye. Good to talk to you. Bye.